Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer and here are today's top stories. A third vote for House Speaker delayed, but the Republican nominee, Congressman Jim Jordan, says he's still in the race. What Republicans spoke about behind closed doors beyond who should take the Speaker's role. And in Fulton County, Georgia, another RICO defendant cuts a deal with the prosecutor. Attorney Sidney Powell gets a lighter sentence in exchange for agreeing to testify at the trial of former President Trump. The U.S. is warning all Americans abroad to take caution. And Israeli officials tell troops to get ready for the ground offensive into the Gaza Strip, saying the order will come. And a rare Oval Office address from the president. How will he appeal to Americans as the White House plans to request an unprecedented aid package for Ukraine and Israel? The House remains without a speaker as of now. Republicans again meeting behind closed doors for hours to try to find consensus, not only about a speaker, but if there's a temporary solution to pass legislation. NTD's Melina Weiskup reports from Capitol Hill. Melina, Republican nominee Jim Jordan says he's not backing down. Tell us more about where we are at this point. Well, Stiff, unfortunately, we're again at a standstill here. We were at that closed door meeting today with Republicans. They left quite frustrated, saying that they had made no progress. The House floor has been in recess essentially the entire day. Jim Jordan, like you mentioned, says he will try to go for a third ballot and hopefully try to shore up the votes that he needs to secure the gavel. But look, Tiff, in some sense, we're at an even worse position than we were at last Friday because not only can Republicans not agree on how to move forward with the speakership race, but also, they're not in agreement on whether or not to pass a resolution that would expand the temporary speaker's power so that they can at least get some legislative action going while they Ill are still trying to figure this out. But we'll get into that a little bit later. First, I want to show you what Jim Jordan said, leaving that hours-long closed-door meeting today that led to no progress, along with one of his longtime holdout votes. Take a look. We made the pitch to um, members on the resolution as a way to lower the temperature and get back to work. Uh, we decided that wasn't where we're going to go. I'm still running for speaker, and I plan to go to the floor uh, and get the votes and win this race. But I want to go talk with a, a few of my colleagues. Particularly, I want to talk with the 20 individuals who voted against me um, so that we can move forward and begin to work for the American people. Anything, anything at this point that Jordan could do that would change your mind? Very hard. And there's never, never. There's never a never, but uh, it would be really, really hard for them. So that lost congressman has been a longtime critic of Jordan, a very vocal critic. Of course, he says he's not willing to change his mind at this point, and that's exactly what Jordan's trying to do right now. He's trying to meet with those 20 members to see if there's any of them that he can change their minds, because remember, Tiff, Republicans do hold a very slim majority in the House, so Jordan can't afford to lose more than four votes when he takes this back to the floor, which at this point it's unclear when he will take it back to the floor. And Melina, the resolution to empower the temp speaker, we just heard Jordan refer to in that clip. Some were trying to push a vote on that as early as today. Where do things stand now? So this is a really dicey topic for Republicans. They spent a large part of today's closed door session talking about just this, whether or not to bring this resolution to the floor. And Republicans are in total disagreement over this. Here's what they were saying about this resolution as they were leaving today. We just 
Uh, you could tell there were key disagreements, and uh, you know our members, um, I think rightly, do not want to take a resolution like that to the floor. Um, if something like that goes to the floor, you have to have unanimous uh, support from our conference. It is not there. I don't. I wouldn't say quite dead. We didn't take a. We didn't vote, so we don't. Yeah. We you, didn't. You, we don't know. Speaker McCarthy also stood up and and said that this was the right way to move forward. Uh, we are at a standstill. It's like if we're digging a hole and you keep hitting rock, like dig in a different place. You know, we can't keep doing what we've been doing. So I support it. I'm, I'm leaving conference after several hours to go eat lunch. I don't think we're going to get anything resolved. So as you just heard, Republicans in total disagreement over this. There are some Republicans who now want to try to work with Democrats to see if there's still a way they can bring this to the floor as a privileged motion. So we will be looking out for that uh, tomorrow as well as when this third ballot for Jordan will come up to the floor. Tiff? Melina, thank you for that update. Attorney Sidney Powell agrees to testify at the former president's RICO trial. The agreement is part of a plea deal she made with Georgia prosecutors. NTD's legal correspondent has the details. How do you plead to the six counts of conspiracy to commit intentional interference with performance of election duties? Guilty. Attorney Sidney Powell pleading guilty to misdemeanor charges in exchange for getting more serious charges dismissed. The original felony charges against her and 18 co-defendants included racketeering and conspiracy to commit election fraud. On Thursday, she pleaded guilty to six misdemeanors. All six counts accused her of conspiring to intentionally interfere with the performance of election duties. She must pay a $6,000 fine, serve a maximum sentence of six years probation, and pay $2,700 in restitution for damaged election equipment. Under the original indictment, Powell was accused of copying data and software from voting machines in Coffee County without permission. Powell became known for using the phrase, release the Kraken, referring to what she believed to be a treasure trove of election fraud evidence in 2020. President Trump won by a landslide. We are going to prove it, and we are going to reclaim the United States of America for the people who vote for freedom. As part of the deal, Powell must truthfully testify in the trials of former President Trump and other co-defendants, give up certain rights, and admit to some facts. And are you pleading guilty today because you agree that there is a sufficient factual basis, that there are enough facts that support this plea of guilty? I do. Powell's plea came just days before she was set to go to trial beginning on Monday. Other parts of the deal include writing a letter of apology to citizens of Georgia, providing a recorded statement of the events that occurred, providing all documents requested by the prosecutor, and not communicating with witnesses, co-defendants, or the media. Tiffany? So what does Powell's plea deal mean for the former president? To explore the implications, we sat down with Kash Patel, a former national security prosecutor. Kash Patel, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Hey, thanks for having me back on. Cash, Trump's former attorney, Sidney Powell, has pleaded guilty in the Georgia elections cases just one day before jury selection for her case. How does this impact Trump? Look, it's difficult to forecast any time the scenario plays out. As a former federal public defender and prosecutor myself, uh, you know, the prosecutor holds the keys on something like this. But you have to examine the situation. This is the most high-profile case that the state of Georgia has ever brought. Um, involving a president's uh, inner circle and attorneys, and they charged a 37-count RICO case that's going to take years to litigate. 
And Sidney Powell decided to press ahead with her right to a trial. She also has a right to plead guilty, which she did. Now, the important thing for me is that she was charged with felonies, and all those felonies were dismissed, and she pled guilty to a misdemeanor. Now, I don't know the terms of her cooperation agreement, but I can't imagine a prosecutor offering that type of deal without saying, you have to come in and testify against whomever we ask you to testify against in the future to secure that deal. On that last part, the Associated Press is saying that part of her deal includes that, where she is, has to testify truthfully against her co-defendants in future trials. Are we going to see her testify against Trump? Well, I don't know that that case is ever going to make it to trial in, in, in the timeline that the Georgia district attorney wants to. But technically, yes, there is a scenario where that could play out. But you have to remember, not only does she have to have information against Donald Trump, she can't just be a witness just to be a witness, but that information cannot be from her tenureship as the attorney for President Trump because it's protected by attorney-client privilege. And the client, not the attorney, can only waive that. So if they're talking about communications that were had as, as Ms. Powell's attorney to President Trump, those are never going to come in. And Sydney is a lawyer. What do you make of why she would turn around and plead guilty? Well, I can only examine the situation agnostically from the outside. She was facing a slew of felonies, uh, you know, 10 plus years in prison. And this guarantees not only that she doesn't have a felony conviction, because we've talked about on the program how the juries down there are going to convict most of the defendants in this case. It doesn't matter what the presentation of evidence is. So she avoids that, gets the misdemeanor, and gets it over with, essentially, um, in terms of her criminal liability. So that may be what garnered her interest and desire to get this thing resolved, not to mention the fact that it's going to cost a monumental amount of legal fees to take this case to trial. And some are calling this a win for the Fulton County. How big of a deal is her plea? Uh, not really. It's one of, I, I think, 18 co-defendants co that have been charged. And if they thought that, or if they are running around singing this as a victory, to me, it shows the deficiencies in their case. You want to claim victory with one of your higher targets. When we call these things the conspiracies, the pyramid schemes, you want the top. Um, you don't want the building blocks. And I understand that sometimes you have to get the building blocks to flip to get to the people above. But generally, those people need to deliver the top, top, top of the line. And so it's going to remains to be seen what information she will, if any, um, provide against directly Donald Trump. And given this latest development, what do you see as Trump's defense? I think his defense has always been the same. Donald Trump has said he has the free speech right to challenge any election result, just like Hillary Clinton did, just like Speaker Pelosi did, just like Hakeem Jeffries has done in the past and so many others. And he has that basis to do it in state, in federal issues, in courts. And I think that's the heart of the defense, not to mention the fact that President Trump, the phone call in consequence has been released. The transcript is out there. It literally shows. It's like I related to the Ukraine phone call that they said, oh, President Trump, Trump had a quid pro quo. When actually you read the transcript, it was the exact opposite. And in my opinion, the same is true of the Georgia case where you have the transcript of the phone call itself. And it, in my opinion, that completely exonerates Trump. But that's not how the mainstream media is going to take it and view it and spin it. And they've been doing that for years. I think people are starting to pick up, though, on the two-tier system of justice. It does seem like there is this separate trial by media. Well, Kash Patel, thank you so much for your time.
Truckloads of humanitarian aid are getting ready to enter Gaza as the border is expected to reopen tomorrow. This comes as Israel tells troops to get ready for the ground offensive. Humanitarian aid is ready to get into the Gaza Strip from Egypt as the Rafah crossing is expected to reopen by Friday. Israel on Wednesday agreed to allow up to 20 trucks to pass through at the urging of President Biden. The World Health Organization said five of its trucks carrying medical supplies are waiting at the Rafah crossing. Our trucks are loaded and ready to go. We're working with Egypt and Palestine Red Crescent societies to deliver our supplies into Gaza as soon as the Rafah crossing is opened, hopefully tomorrow. More than 100 trucks have been waiting at the border since the war began. More aid is arriving in Egypt, including over 30 tons from Venezuela and 27 tons from Russia. U.S. President Biden has also pledged $100 million worth of humanitarian aid to Gazans through international organizations. But the State Department expressed concern Thursday. And so Hamas may try to divert this assistance and keep it from getting to the civilians who, who it is intended for. We think that's a legitimate concern. Uh, we've made clear that this aid needs to go to innocent civilians and not Hamas. We're going to be watching very carefully uh, how it's delivered um, because we want to be sensitive to those concerns, which we share. This comes as Israel gets ready for the ground offensive into the Gaza Strip. Israel's defense minister met with soldiers stationed near the border with Gaza on Thursday, telling them the battle will be lengthy and difficult. Get organized. Be ready. The order will come. Thank you so much. Guys, we trust you. Good luck. And we'll meet again. Whoever sees Gaza from outside now will see it from the inside. I promise you. That's a promise. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu also addressed soldiers near the border with Gaza. Tens of thousands of Israeli troops have been masked along the border with Gaza since the war began on October 7th. The entire state of Israel stands behind you, and we will give the hard blow to our enemies so that we achieve victory. For victory. Are you ready? And along the border with Lebanon, Israeli troops continue to exchange fire with the Hezbollah terrorist group backed by Iran. Hezbollah said its rockets hit several Israeli military targets, and Israel reported three injuries. Elsewhere in the region, drone attacks intensified against U.S. forces. A base in Syria hosting U.S. troops was targeted by two drones Thursday morning, causing minor injuries. Another drone attack was reported on the same day at a base hosting U.S. forces in Iraq. Thursday's attack is the third in less than 24 hours against air bases which house U.S. troops in Iraq. U.S. authorities have also issued a global travel warning for all Americans, citing increased tensions around the world. It says to be extra cautious in tourist areas. As of Thursday, over 5,100 people have died in the war between Israel and Hamas. They include nearly 3,800 people in Gaza. More than 1,400 people in Israel have been killed, mostly in the initial attack. The Israeli military updated the number of people believed to have been taken hostage to 206. Reporting by Allison Lee, 
NTD News. A U.S. Navy warship in the Middle East shot down a number of missiles near the coast of Yemen today. Pentagon officials say they were launched by Iranian-backed Houthi militants. To that end, the crew of the guided missile destroyer USS Kearney, operating in the northern Red Sea earlier today, shot down three land attack cruise missiles and several drones that were launched by Houthi forces in Yemen. This action was a demonstration of the integrated air and missile defense architecture that we have built in the Middle East and that we are prepared to utilize whenever necessary to protect our partners and our interests in this important region. Pentagon Press Secretary Brigadier General Pat Ryder said it's unclear what the missiles were targeting, but said they were launched, quote, potentially toward targets in Israel. Ryder also said there were no casualties to U.S. forces or any civilians that they are aware of. President Biden, seeking to expand funding for both Israel and Ukraine, will address the nation tonight. But it comes as questions mount over aid to Gaza and division deepens over more taxpayer dollars to Ukraine. Joining us now live is NTD's Iris Tao. Iris, what positions will the president present and what challenges is he facing? So President Biden just came back to the White House from Israel late last night and just in a few hours at tonight at 8 p.m., President Biden will make a direct appeal to the American public at home about why the U.S. needs to not only back Israel but also continue supporting Ukraine. Here's what the White House said this morning. Watch. Uh, he will connect uh, those events and this broader moment uh, to the lives of Americans uh, back here and explain uh, why this should matter to us, why this must uh, matter to us uh, as Americans. And the speech coming up tonight is rare because it marks only the second time that President Biden has addressed the nation from the Oval Office after taking office. And it comes at a time when the White House is expected to ask Congress for some $100 billion in aid. It reportedly was about $60 billion going to Ukraine and $40 billion going to Israel, Taiwan and some funding for the southern U.S. border. But we do expect this funding request to encounter pushback in Congress especially over more Ukraine aid. We know that the U.S. has already sent Ukraine about some $75 billion, and the support for more Ukraine aid has been waning not only among the American public, according to polls, but also among Republican members of Congress. And maybe that's why the administration is now trying to tie more Ukraine aid with some aid to Israel, as well as some funding for the border, which could get some more Republican lawmakers on board. Wow, tens of billions. It's definitely a major financial commitment from the U.S. if it goes through. Now, President Biden yesterday also announcing $100 million in aid for Gaza and the West Bank. What are we hearing about that money? So that is sparking a lot of controversy right now because, as we know, Hamas is controlling the Gaza Strip. And the major concern right now is whether any of that aid will fall into the hands of the Hamas terrorist group. So President Biden has promised that if any of the aid gets stolen from Hamas or if they act to to just directly take it, the aid will have to stop. But right now we are hearing a lot of Republican lawmakers voicing criticism toward this, with some members calling it a gift to Hamas. So it remains to be seen whether President Biden will address some concerns on that front later tonight. Tiff. Iris, thank you for that update. Starbucks is suing its employees' union over a very controversial post on X, formerly Twitter. Starbucks says the union's post has caused the company irreparable harm. 
This is the union's post. It depicts a bulldozer ripping down the fence that separates the Gaza Strip and Israel. Hamas had broken through the fence earlier this month as part of its massacre of 1,400 Israelis. Most of those killed by the terrorists were civilians, including babies, women and the elderly. The union, called Starbucks Workers United, wrote solidarity with Palestine at the top of the post. It has since been taken down. Starbucks issued a statement saying that it unequivocally condemns the recent acts of terrorism and disagrees with the views expressed by the union. Starbucks is suing the union over its use of the Starbucks name and logo, which the company says has caused people to associate the post with Starbucks itself. Coming up, what are students really reading? And are parents aware of the explicit content in schools? Lawmakers debate the issue. Premiums for employer-based family health insurance jumped to nearly $24,000 this year, up 7% from last year. Will they go up even more? Netflix subscribers increase and so do prices. Find out what you'll have to pay to watch your favorite shows when we return. Welcome back. What's on the shelves of our school libraries? Lawmakers raise serious concerns about the content that children are being exposed to. NTD's Jason Perry has the details and please be advised the following content is graphic in nature. If these books are too inappropriate for adults and they are certainly inappropriate for children. In a hearing held by the House Subcommittee on Early Childhood, Elementary and Secondary Education, Lawmakers examined the books in American school libraries. Representative Burgess Owens started with a book that has been banned. One of our nation's most consequential books banning was done by the Supreme Court in 1963 when officially mandated Bible reading. This book is banned from all of us. Anything that deals with federal that's no longer can see it, can no longer read it. He said because of that, generations of Americans have no knowledge of the tenets upon which the country was founded. He then gave a sample of books that are available to school-age children. Genderqueer features pictures of oral sex performed on sex toys. This book is gay, provides a how-to guide for strangers to, for sex on gay sex apps. Out of the Darkness contains rape. Lucky contains rape. All Boys Aren't Blue contains underage incest. Lawn board contains a passage where 10-year-old boys performing oral sex on each other. And this parent explained the impact these books can have on children. Actually, my second grader last year was read one of these books off the shelf. Um, and he was very uncomfortable and actually had to leave the library and ask to go to the bathroom because he was uncomfortable. I don't think we should ever put a seven-year-old in that predicament. However, Representative Suzanne Bonamici said there are so many definitions of pornography and that who is defining it is part of the problem. And then she shared a different view on one of these books in particular. But we really need to highlight the danger of ignoring or worse, erasing history by removing uh, school library books that portray representations of marginalized people, culture, experiences. Books like All Boys Aren't Blue, a captivating memoir. It's affirming for young LGBTQ readers, especially those who are black. 
Max Eden, a research fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, pointed to a potential issue within the American Library Association, which recommends certain books for schools. He said the ALA's president is a self-proclaimed Marxist, who said school libraries need to be sites of socialist organizing. Jason Perry, NTD News. Workers and their employers are paying a lot more for job-based health insurance this year. The annual cost of family health insurance coverage at work soared at an average of nearly $24,000 this year. We spoke to NTD Business's Don Ma for more. Don Ma, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, always great to be here, Tiffany. To begin, how much more are people paying for health insurance than they were before? Well, Premiums for both family and single plans climbed uh, 7% compared to last year. So this is according to an employer health benefits survey by a nonprofit that researches health care issues called KFF. So employees are shelling out uh, an average of $6,500 or so uh, for their share of the insurance. And uh, for single coverage, uh, the average cost annually rose to over $8,000. Now. It seems like 7% jump may be a lot, but a jump in cost is roughly in line with the rise in wages and inflation since 2022. Cost for family coverage rose 7%, along with wages, which grew about 5.2% on average. And inflation rose 5.8% last year. So those are just some uh, numbers for your reference. And the tight job market, it seems like doesn't help with that either because it has prompted companies to avoid watering down their health insurance coverage since it can be a recruiting and retention tool. And are costs expected to rise in 2024? Well, it's hard to say, but some analysts are saying this may happen. The director of health benefits research for the Employee Benefit Research Institute says that, you know, it's hard to imagine that there won't be another year of healthcare cost increases. And as well, according to a consulting firm, Mercer, costs for companies could increase 6.5% next year. A healthcare provider consolidation also can drive up healthcare costs. And what that means is ultimately it could affect premiums. But you know, back to the employer health benefits survey from KFF, it also found that nearly a quarter of companies said that they will increase employees' premium contributions in the next two years. So, you know, it wouldn't be a bad idea for some workers at least to prepare for premiums to take a bigger bite out of their paychecks next year. But of course, uh, this is for people who get health care coverage through their jobs. Um, but it's still a significant number, number of people because more than 150 million Americans get their health insurance this way. Wow. Well, Donma, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, always great to be here, Tiffany. Streaming giant Netflix alters its subscription prices after gaining millions of new subscribers. NTD's Christina Corona has more on the story. Netflix has raised the subscription fees for certain streaming plans in the United States, United Kingdom, and France Wednesday. Achieving higher-than-anticipated new customer numbers led to a 16% spike in its stock shares. In the third quarter, nearly 9 million subscribers worldwide subscribed to Netflix. Starting Wednesday, Netflix has announced that it will be adjusting the prices of its basic and premium subscription plans in the U.S. The basic plan will 
increase to $11.99 from its previous price of $9.99, while the premium plan will now be priced at $22.99, up from its former cost of $19.99. However, the $6.99 ad-supported plan and the $15.49 standard plan will remain at their existing prices. In the UK, it increased by £2 to £17.99, and in France, it rose by €2 Euros to €19.99. Euros. The price increases were disclosed within an earnings report that showed the company's global subscriber base reached $247 million at the end of September. Christina Corona, NTD News, Los Angeles. Coming up, Arab nations don't want to take in Palestinian refugees. Find out why they say that is and what a former State Department official says what he thinks is the real reason. While it battles Hamas, Israel also has to consider another enemy, one that is far stronger. If it joins the war, the tide may change. Why is China moving closer to Russia, supporting Iran and enlarging its nuclear arsenal all at the same time? A retired general tells us that China wants to lead an anti-Western alliance in a new version of the Soviet Union. And California's governor planning several international trips, first to Israel to meet with victims of the recent terror attacks, then to China to talk about climate change. The China visit will come a month before a major meeting between Asia-Pacific leaders. That's coming up. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some today's top headlines. The House is in limbo. Republicans plan to empower the temporary speaker is scrapped and Congressman Jim Jordan is promising to push ahead with a third vote soon. One of former President Trump's co-defendants in the Georgia election case, Sidney Powell, pleaded guilty to six misdemeanors. She is the second co-defendant to accept a plea deal in the case and her trial will begin next Monday. The Israeli defense minister met with troops stationed near the border with Gaza and told them to prepare for the ground offensive into the territory. Aid trucks are also preparing to enter Gaza through Egypt. President Biden will address the nation tonight, where he's expected to discuss America's response, the crisis in Israel and Ukraine. Taking in Palestinian refugees or not, U.S. lawmakers are split. Meanwhile, leaders of the Arab world are clear. They are not going to accept any Palestinian refugees. NTD's Arian Pazdar explores why Arab countries are closing their doors to fellow Muslims. The leaders of both Egypt and Jordan this week saying they won't take in any Palestinian refugees from Gaza or the West Bank. Both are Muslim countries and border Palestine. However, they're making their stance very clear. No refugees in Jordan, no refugees in Egypt. The leaders of the two Arab nations say they're not accepting refugees because if there are no people in Gaza, then Israel could just take over. However, some are questioning whether that's the only reason why they won't take them. The Palestinians have a reputation for wrecking any country that they go to in large numbers. Bart Markoy is a former foreign service officer with the U.S. State Department. He says Jordan, Lebanon, Tunisia, Kuwait and others serve as examples for his comments. 
such as a refugee camp for Palestinians in Lebanon, which he says became a breeding ground for government infiltration. The Palestinian politicians were endorsing uh, various factions within the Lebanese government and their, they were supplying militiamen to the various militias attached to various factions within the Lebanese government. Egypt's president this week gave another reason for not accepting Palestinian refugees, namely that Hamas members might come to Egypt this way and then fire rockets from Egypt into Israel, which would drag Egypt into the war. It is a secondary reason. The primary reason is they don't want Hamas firing rockets at Cairo or Alexandria. And it's not just countries in the Middle East. On Thursday, officials from Europe said they now want to send back certain refugees if they pose a security threat. This comes after multiple terrorist attacks in Europe just this week. Two people have been killed in Belgium and many more have been affected across Europe. We expect the European Parliament to provide a common position that would allow us to proceed with expedite returns. Another official said the European Union already increased returns by 20% this year. Arian Pastar, NTD News. As Israel fights Hamas, a far stronger enemy sits near Israel's northern border watching the events. A terrorist group that boasts it's thousands of times stronger than before. If it enters the fight, the war will change completely. NTD's Arlene Richards has more. With Israel focusing on eliminating Hamas, a far more powerful terrorist group watches from beyond the northern border. Hezbollah. Hezbollah is by far much more powerful than Hamas and Islamic Jihad. Its, its military capacities are, I don't know, 10 times bigger than Hamas and Islamic Jihad together, combined. Avi Melamed is a former Israeli senior official and the author of Inside the Middle East. He says it's possible Hezbollah could attack Israel and join the war, though it's far from certain. If Hezbollah were to attack, the result could be devastating. Hezbollah is estimated to have 150,000 rockets. Hamas's rockets are made from pipes. Hezbollah's rockets include heavy missiles, long-range missiles, and high-precision missiles. It also has assault drones, cyber warfare capabilities, trained combat forces, including special units, intelligence-gathering capabilities, and an independent communication system. If Hezbollah joins the war... This will inflict a very significant damage to the state of Israel. Missiles and rockets are deliberately targeting Israel's cities and infrastructure like harbors, airports, and so on. Israel will be able to intercept the rockets, or many of the rockets, but still the amount of rockets and missiles Hezbollah could launch are just simply enormous. Melamed says Israel won't be able to stop all those rockets. Hezbollah was founded in the early 1980s with the main goal of resisting Israel. It has even fought with Israel before in a month-long war in 2006 that left over a thousand Lebanese citizens dead. Since the recent Hamas terror attack, Israel has been exchanging gunfire with Hezbollah almost daily. Arlene Richards, NTD News. China and Russia continue to support Iran, the chief enabler of Hamas. At the same time, China is increasing its nuclear arsenal. What's going on? We're joined by a national security analyst who says the anti-Western alignment of China, Russia, Iran and North Korea is a new version of the Soviet Union led by China. General Spalding, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be back on the show. Thank you. It's great to be back. 
We saw President Biden visit Israel at the same time Russia's Putin was in Beijing with Xi Jinping. Are we seeing a reordering of world powers? I don't think it's a reordering. I think it's just a consistent ordering of what we've already expected. Um, not only is Putin going to Beijing to rub elbows with Xi, um, I think the, um, uh, the Iranian leaders are aligned with both Russia and China, and the North Korean leader is too. So, you know, this is the new, you know, Soviet Union. And it's led by China, but um, no. So I don't think this is anything inconsistent with what we've already seen. We should just expect more of more of this. And in terms of what we're seeing in Israel, what is China's influence in the Israel-Hamas war? <laughs> well, that's the, the funny thing. I think um, there's a couple of things that uh, we have to pay attention to here. First of all, their support of Iran, who supports Hamas. So China is financially supporting Iran. They're buying oil from Iran. They're giving goods to Iran. But more importantly, if you look at the propaganda coming out of both China and Russia, they're supporting Hamas's, you know, view in this in this in this conflict. And so you have to say, you know, China, you can't have you play play both sides. You have to actually uh, be who you are, and they are being who they are, and that is they support. You know, everything that is counter to the West to include Hamas. So we should acknowledge that. And the Biden administration, more importantly, should be punishing the Chinese for that. I think the frustrating thing for me is that they're not. And on that note, there's talks of this conflict escalating. Israel has nuclear weapons. Iran potentially could create them. Now, the Pentagon has come out and says that China has more than 500 nuclear weapons. How likely are we to see the world on the brink of a nuclear war? Well, so this is kind of troubling, because if you think about what the Chinese strategy was before, it was minimum deterrence. In other words, we're going to have the minimum amount of nuclear weapons to protect um, the, the Chinese Communist Party from any attack coming from the West or from the United States. Now they're increasing their weapons. So what is the purpose of that increase? Does this mean that they are trying to give themselves an uh, offensive uh, breakout capability? If they are, we should be very concerned about this. Not only that, but given the fact that they have this relationship with Russia, these are things that we should be uh, thinking about. Unfortunately, Washington, D.C. has stopped thinking about nuclear weapons. We've certainly stopped being afraid of them. Anytime we can say that we can contemplate a war with China and not uh, really think about the fact that they have nuclear weapons and this could potentially escalate to nuclear war, I think we're not uh, using common sense. We understood this during the first Cold War. We understood the danger to humanity, and I think that's something we have to focus. That doesn't mean that we give up or that we give in to blackmail. But it does mean that we start to think very clearly about how we message, you know, our credible use of these weapons to deter China and Russia from any action that we think is outside of the interests of not just the United States, but the free world. And expanding on that, given all the tensions and what's at stake here that you just outlined, what must the U.S. do now? Well, I think they have to get serious, and they have to basically put Beijing and uh, Moscow on notice. Now, we don't want to push uh, Moscow into a nuclear war by forcing them into a corner in Ukraine, but we do need to put them on notice that if they do something that we believe is against our interests, that is crossing a red line, and that, I've said, can include 
an invasion of Taiwan, then we need to put them on notice about it. And I tell you that the Chinese Communist Party, who is only concerned about its survival, will respond to that. They will respect that. But until we do that, then we have to expect that China feels like they can do, and the Chinese Communist Party feels like they can do whatever they want in the Indo-Pacific. Quite concerning. Well, General Spaulding, thank you so much for your time. Meanwhile, California Governor Gavin Newsom says he's on his way to Israel, where he'll meet with people impacted by the recent terrorist attacks and offer California support. He'll then head to China to talk about climate change. The visit will come a month before a major economics meeting between Asia-Pacific leaders. Governor Gavin Newsom announced he will travel to China next week for meetings with national and provincial leaders to discuss climate action and other key partnerships. In a statement on Wednesday, he said, As two of the world's largest economies, our partnership is essential to delivering climate action for our communities and beyond. The week-long visit will include stops in Beijing, Hong Kong, Shanghai, as well as Guangdong and Jiangsu provinces, where he is expected to sign memoranda of understanding to cooperate on climate initiatives. Newsom's trip comes after a series of China visits by top Biden administration officials, including Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. Newsom's visit comes a month before the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation, or APEC, leaders meet during the week of November 11 to 17 in San Francisco. The U.S. Secret Service and the San Francisco Police Department gave a briefing on Wednesday to discuss security plans. During the last several months, and in fact today, uh, this collaborative team has conducted numerous training exercises, one of which we finished this morning, which was a tabletop, a senior leader tabletop exercise to prepare for this event. This ensures that each agency is properly prepared for this uh, event of this magnitude. The summit meetings will consist of a 21-member APEC forum. Police Chief Bill Scott said they would not conduct sweeps for homeless encampments as all resources will be dedicated to safety and security. We're expecting up to 20,000 people from across 21 member APEC economies, hundreds of CEOs from around the world, and expecting close to 1,000 media representatives. Our city is ready to meet this moment. The U.S. Secret Service designated the summit a national special security event, meaning that the Secret Service will be the lead agency for all security operations related to the summit. Authorities are due to release a map with various road closures throughout the city. Coming up in college football, Michigan is taking some heat from the NCAA. Is sign-stealing legal during play? Find out more after the break. Welcome back, and now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, your pick to win the ALCS, Houston finally got a win last night, but still trails 2-1. to one. Are you surprised they're not starting Justin Verlander today? Yes, I am. You know, no offense to Jose Urquidy, but Verlander, like you said, he is a three-time signing winner. And if they don't win tonight, their backs are against their wall. They'd be down 3-1. Now, I understand he just pitched in game one, and that would only be four days rest. Normally, pitchers get five. But his previous two starts, he got a week rest. Um, plus, if you pitch him in game four, 
you can set them up to pitch again in Game 7. And Texas has already signaled they're going to start their ace, Max Scherzer, in Game 7. I would think you'd want to start your best. Certainly the fans would want to see that. Uh, I certainly would as well. And now over in the NLCS, Game 3 is currently in progress, but Philadelphia is in control of the series, leading 2 to nothing. What does Arizona need to do to start winning and get back in the series? Yeah, they pretty much need to do everything better. You know, they gave up 10 runs in Game 2 and didn't score a single run themselves. you got to remember, Arizona only won 84 games in the regular season. That's one of the lowest win totals ever for a playoff team. They were actually outscored in total by their opponents during the regular season as well. They got here by sweeping Milwaukee and L.A., but a lot of people, myself included, would say that maybe those two teams kind of wilted under the pressure of the playoffs a bit. Well, certainly for the Dodgers, that's been a bit of a recurring theme. And while shifting gears to football, Jacksonville plays at New Orleans tonight, but Trevor Lawrence has been listed as questionable with a knee injury. Is there an update on his status? Yeah, well, the word is he'll be a game-time decision, so we might not know for another hour. Now, certainly, their chances of winning hinge greatly on whether he plays or not, though I'll grant he's put up somewhat underwhelming numbers so far this year. I mean, this guy finished seventh in the MVP voting last year, and I think everyone, myself included, thought he would continue to climb the ladder. Instead, I would say he's been passed up by other young quarterbacks this season, like uh, Brock Purdy and uh, Tua Valoa. And now, looking at the college game, Michigan announced today the NCAA is investigating them for rules violations this season, specifically in-person advanced scouting of opponents. There are even allegations of sign-stealing. How serious are these allegations? You know, I have never seen the NCAA investigate something like this. You hear all the time about players and coaches alleging that someone was stealing their signs during the game. Sign stealing itself, though, actually isn't against the rules. It's sending advanced scouts to games of your future opponents. Now, Michigan might be in some extra trouble just because they're already uh, in some trouble for some alleged recruiting violations, which is why Harbaugh missed the first three games this season. But I think Harbaugh himself would be all right. I mean, he's won two straight Big Ten titles. Michigan will try like crazy to keep on to hold on to him no matter what. Any school probably would try to hold on to him, I would say, though. And as always, thanks for joining us, Dave. Thank you, Tiff. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.